Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. And we're bringing you an extra edition this week. There's an election on, as you know, and so our main weekly edition is going to be taken up with that. But we also always want to talk to the most interesting people who come to Cambridge about politics. And I'm delighted to be joined by Pankaj Mishra, who's speaking at the Cambridge Literary Festival. We're actually about to speak together at the Cambridge Literary Festival, but we're sitting in a room beforehand to have a chat about his book, The Age of Anger, and how that relates to many of the things that we've talked about on Talking Politics, Modi, Trump, Brexit. So if we start with Modi, Trump, and we've talked a little bit about whether the comparison really makes sense. My feeling is that it does. What view is the primary thing that connects the movements that they they represent? Well, for one, both are outsiders, and they broaden their appeal using Twitter. I mean, these are very superficial things I'm talking about, but they are important in the sense that here is Modi, who was an outcast, widely derided in Indian politics, really in a kind of disgrace after his... um, complicity, some people would say suspected, but many others would say quite real complicity in, in, in anti-Muslim violence in 2002. And for a long time, you know, nobody thought that he would go anywhere apart from continue being chief minister of Gujarat. But then he launched this campaign after 2010, using Twitter extremely shrewdly, speaking above the heads of mainstream um, media organizations and built up a large following attacking Delhi-based elites, English-speaking elites, very shrewdly capitalizing on feelings of ressentiment among large numbers of aspiring young Indians who felt their way blocked by this particular elite and felt that there was really nobody among established mainstream parties representing them, and that the benefits of liberalization or globalization in India were being monopolized by a tiny minority. And he started to speak for them. He started to represent them very convincingly on Twitter, mostly through personal attacks. Again, I mean, there's, you, know, you, can, you can sort of look at his Twitter feed and find a lot of things he said back in 2012, 2013, leading up to the elections in 2014, and you would see the same kind of venomous personal attacks on on various people that Trump has later made his speciality. So there is that, uh, the way in which he kind of mobilized large numbers of people into voting for his platform. But I think, more importantly, I feel that he represents the way in which democracy in India, for instance, democratic institutions, their failure to respond to this new regime of inequality, which has become more oppressive for more and more people, in fact, in the last 20 years, uh, since it is accompanied now by this great, fantastically attractive promise of prosperity and equality. So I think it's probably right to see both Trump and Modi as essentially beneficiaries of this large mood of frustration. Uh, In one case, you have people facing blocked mobility in India. In the other case, it's downward mobility or the prospect of downward mobility. 
And one of the striking differences is that, as you said, Modi's appeal is, in part at least, to the young who feel that these avenues have been closed off to them. Trump, and then let's bring in Brexit at this point, the demographic is the other way. It's, it's primarily the old. The really interesting one here then is Le Pen, because Le Pen's support is also skewed towards the young. That's one of the striking things about it. So in the case of Modi, how does he channel the anger of young people who think that democracy doesn't work for them? By identifying enemies, by identifying scapegoats. Um, he did it very successfully with Muslims and then uh, broadened his range to include dynastic elites. And in the Nehru Gandhi family, he found the perfect target. And this was you know, a perfect target in the sense that the Nehru Gandhi dynasty has been more or less politically incompetent for a very long time and as commonly credited with all kinds of failures and, and, and problems, he was the one who really kind of made this public in a way no opposition politician had, had managed to do. And um, identifying, along with the Nehru Gandhi family, this particular class in India which emerged with Nehru, with, with certain kind of credentials to rule India, a kind of expensive education. And, of course, this elite was represented very broadly in the bureaucracy, also in politics, I think, in, in the higher levels of politics were dominated by people from that kind of Nehruvian background. And he very successfully managed to direct the rage of people feeling left behind or pushed behind against this elite and saying, these are the people blocking your way forward. One of the features of the American case, and certainly the British case as well, is that young people on the whole aren't going along with some of these populist movements of the right because there's a huge divide between university, currently at university or university-educated people and people who didn't go to university. And the numbers are large because you know, nearly half of young Americans go to college in some form or another. Nearly half of people in the UK now go to university in some form or another. So presumably that is one of the differences between these two cases. Am I right? That oh, absolutely. Absolutely. India is just at this point just at a different stage in its economic development. And so these kinds of divides manifest themselves there quite differently. But nevertheless, I think the successful identification of the enemy, which is that, you know, here are these people blocking away. And in the case of Britain and America, the immigrants who are basically coming and if not stealing our jobs, then conspiring to undermine the American nation from within or indeed Muslims or indeed any number of people who are hell-bent upon undermining us. So I feel that these two pathologies seem to be common. These other details are, of course, different. And, of course, the demographic thing is, is different. Is another difference that it's early days for the Trump presidency, but Modi, in a sense, has governed in line with his rhetoric. And Trump, increasingly, some of his supporters are feeling adrift, is drifting away, that he's sort of far from draining the swamp, he's kind of dived in. Um, and you know, that whole argument, Bannon's on the way out, Ivanka is now globalist Ivanka and Jared Kushner telling Donald what to do. Is it right that Modi has, in a way that Trump so far doesn't seem to have, followed through on that early sort of Twitter and other rhetoric in the way that he's governed? 
I think that's probably right. One thing he is, of course, comprehensively failed to do is deliver on a lot of extravagant promises he made, employment, not to mention, you know, somewhat grander promises of Indian greatness. And he could plausibly argue that he can't accomplish this in just three years. Give him more time. In fact, he says that. Give me more time. Give me 10 years and I'll do it. But I think in terms of his hostility, which he expressed openly towards minorities, the fact that he's failed to hold back or to condemn acts of violence or extreme rhetoric against minorities, that way he's definitely delivered. There's no kind of ambivalence there at all. And how has he survived the incompetence of the currency reform? Because that's the thing, again, seeing it from the outside, the feeling is always that this kind of populist runs up against basic problems of competence and then will be punished at the ballot box. And so here we have a large example of this. You withdraw the two largest denominations from a primarily cash-based economy and people die. It looks like a car crash in those terms. And yet, his first big electoral test, he won an unparalleled victory. So how, how has he managed, rhetorically or politically, to, to get over that hurdle? Well, I think that really points to the extraordinary success of his original electoral strategy, which is to identify the rich, which is to identify the elite as a source of all troubles in the country, and then to package demonetization as an assault on the elites, to tell the poor who are suffering that please tolerate this right now because actually it's the rich who are suffering a lot more and that we are going to squeeze them dry, Um, we're going to chase them all over the world and bring all this so-called black money back to India. A series of promises is made and which he kind of emphasized during the election campaign. And that, I think, was an extraordinary success. So I think what the elections have proved that This particular rhetoric that he introduced into political discourse in in India of Rissantimo remains incredibly potent. And perhaps he could continue to ride it, maybe until the next general election and even afterwards. So should we conclude, I mean, obviously the the situations as we discussed are very different, but should we conclude that people who are already starting to write Donald Trump off are being premature, that you can ride this wave of anger even if it reveals itself as what looks to the elites like incompetence, a lot further than you might think, that we shouldn't think that Trump is quite quickly going to fizzle out. I think that's right, because again, I mean, when we kind of hope that electorates are at some point going to punish these people for failing to deliver on their promises, we again sort of fall into this habit of thinking that the electorates are also thinking rationally, that they are connecting their decisions in the ballot box with, you know, the delivery promised by the people they've elected. But we know that there's a huge gap between these two things. A lot of things can suddenly make people think very differently or some unexpected event enters the frame and, um, again, kind of influence people into voting for the same guy. It's very likely that the American economy, which is slightly on the upswing, will continue to do well over the next three years and voters may think, well, let's give this guy another chance. And, you know, he has in a way changed the rules so much. He's kind of changed the rhetoric so much. People will get used to it in about three years' time. It's very likely. We have got used to it in India. So our unexpected event is a general election and we're just going to touch on it 
your book is called The Age of Anger, and it's, you know, it really is a fascinating joining up of a whole series of what might otherwise look like disparate contemporary phenomena and tracing their historical roots. But in some ways, the outlier is the UK in the context of this election, because though Brexit clearly fits some of that narrative, we've now got a prime minister who, on many measures, is a very conventional, small-C as well as big-C conservative politician. And I suppose she might occasionally channel populist anger, but she doesn't look like many of these other people who are riding this wave. And she does look like she's heading for a thumping victory. So is Theresa May, in your mind, a product of the age of anger, or could we see her as something more familiar from a slightly less angry past? Well, it seems like she's very shrewdly, um, the way she's switched from being this somewhat reticent Remainer to being this full-throated Brexiter has been really instructive to watch. And I think, actually, the point you made in the LRB piece about her relationship with this particular elite within the Conservative Party, I thought was a really important one. And I mean, obviously, I like that argument because it also fitted my argument, which is that that she does represent a kind of backlash against the technocratic, cosmopolitan elites that were dominant within the Conservative Party. So even though her rhetoric may not at all resemble the rhetoric of so many of these demagogues out there, but that she does actually have have an appeal which is incredibly seductive to a lot of people who do feel that they have been led up the garden paths by these figures, pro-European within the Conservative Party and indeed in, in other parties. So I think she does represent, or she has come to represent very cleverly, large numbers of people in this country who you know, voted for Brexit. We could say she's a kind of hybrid then, in that she's matching two things that don't always go together, and one of which is a, she's a shrewd, conventional career politician, which Trump clearly isn't. And then even in France, if you're Macron, though you are, you have to pretend you're not, and so on. And Modi, as he said, though is in a way a, a long-standing politician, is not a career politician in that sense. And she is clearly that. And yet she somehow managed to channel some of this anger. The other thing that might mark her out is that she might win way bigger than any of these other people have. I mean, certainly compared to Trump or even relative to Brexit. I mean, she could emerge as the dominant political figure of the age. It's very likely. I mean, you know, who could have imagined this? But it may it may happen. You know, the British political system, there aren't in, enough ingredients for that kind of extremist figure to emerge. So there will always be someone like Theresa May, who just is ready to capitalize on, you know, what a given political situation. But it's very hard to imagine, you know, the closest we've come to that kind of figure is Farage and look at uh, what a ridiculous figure he is and, and so easily mocked. So, you know, you will only really have career politicians who assume certain masks at certain moments when it suits them. I mean, Blair was a great actor, very much a man of that particular moment. But it's Theresa May's fate to actually come at the end of that whole period with Thatcher, Blair and Cameron and to be there to harness this huge reservoir of discontent and frustration. Finally, the other thing that she's channeling, which does connect with with the other people we've talked about, is 
executive power and authority. I mean, that's the other striking thing about it. It's a parliamentary election, but she's already laid out her stall, which is strong leadership, which means strong prime ministerial executive leadership, or coalition of chaos, which means parliamentary government of some kind. We bring in Erdogan, who's just won his referendum, what's going on in Poland, even what's going on in the Philippines. That is presumably one of the manifestations of the age of anger, which is executive politics trumps legislative politics. Absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, you could say there's something Erdogan-ish about this desire to hold elections and to accumulate more power than she's got at this point, um, so that she has no opponents, not just in the Labour Party, but within her own party. But then I think, you know, the, the kind of preference for strong, authoritative figures is, I suppose, a kind of consequence of living for several decades now with extremely weak state authority and the feeling that many people have of powerlessness and the sense that big decisions are being made by completely opaque, unaccountable folks out there. And so this desire now for strong figures that they can trust, that they can vote for, who will then represent their interests. So in a kind of odd way, we are seeing repoliticization and a kind of revitalization of of democracy, however much we may want to dislike that prospect or the figures that are the beneficiaries of this process. But we are actually, you know, witnessing a kind of repoliticization of the masses, as it were. Pankaj Mishra's book is The Age of Anger. It's a really interesting and wide-ranging account of how history got us to this moment, intellectual history as well as political history. We'll be back in our regular slot um, overnight, Wednesday to Thursday, to talk about whatever has happened in the UK election and also what happened in France. So do please join us then. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.